Father, thank you for this morning. I pray your blessings on our time, that uh, you would be with everyone that couldn't make it today, that you would help them to heal up quickly, and that you would allow this snow to melt in the areas that it needs to so that people can be safe, travel without encumbrance, and uh, we thank you so much, Father, for the great grace that you've given us, the tremendous love that you've shown to us in uh, providing your son as a payment for our sins and giving us new life through his resurrection. So we are so grateful that uh, we are special to you, that you love us so dearly. Help us to understand that and come to realize that. In Jesus' name. Alright, this morning I want to look at Romans 12. Just to pick back up where we, at least in the, in the concepts of what we've discussed in the past, <coughs> as far as the practical application, right? So important to understand the gospel. This is a conclusion of, of course, a discussion in Romans the conclusion of the gospel, right? That you're new, that your spirit is new, that your spirit is dead to sin and alive to God. And consequently, now, it's been made new. We have a, a priesthood right? being made new. We're now, you see it in, in, in Peter, this kingdom of priests, right? Royal priesthood, of which, of course, was illegal in the Old Testament. You couldn't be a royal priest. You could only be a priest or a king. You could, it was illegal in the Old Testament to be a priest and a king. But we're a royal priesthood because we're of Christ, right? And he's not of the priesthood of Aaron. And he's of the priesthood of Melchizedek, which Melchizedek was both a king and a priest and a prophet. So he could be the, the anointed one as opposed to a anointed one. And so this is our priesthood. Our priesthood is simple because ultimately the walk of the believer is to walk by faith and love, right? I mean, that's ultimately it. So it boils down to those two things. It's quite simple. But when it comes down to the nitty-gritty of valuing, like what do I value? Because in... You know, in, in so many different religious expressions, the value is always outside of you. The value is always what you're doing outside of yourself. When in reality, the value or the, the walk of the believer starts with what am I doing with myself? In other words, with my flesh. That is the priesthood. So any action that comes after that is an expression of me presenting my body, an act of belief. And this is what he's talking about here in Romans 12.1. Because of everything I've said, right, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies or compassions of God. In other words, that's pretty much the entire previous 11 chapters. Specifically, chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. Because of all that truth that's laid out, then you present your body, right? You present your body. Present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. So, 
the body, if you've read up to now in Romans, you'll learn is called a body of death and a body of sin. So it's neither living nor is it holy. It's a dead body and it's an unholy body, but you're supposed to present it as if it is, in fact, holy and living. This is the priesthood. So this is an important thing, right? So for the believer, the, the, the goal of life is to master the ability to present my body as a sacrifice back to God. Right? The goal is for me to present my body back to God as a sacrifice. In what way? Well, he's going to talk about that in the rest of the chapter. But the, the mindset has to be that my body is the thing I'm presenting. Right, because it's the only thing that's left that needs salvation. My spirit has died with him, has been made new, but my body still remains. And so there's a technicality about this. My body remains. He purchased both. He purchased my spirit and he purchased my body at salvation. Right? He purchased my spirit, he purchased my body. He kills the spirit and he makes it new. Thus, you're born from above and therefore you have now the qualification to see and enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? New creation. But the body is not dead yet. Right? It is either going to die of natural causes or through some happenstance or it's going to be raptured. And through that, only then will the body be fit for eternity. But until then, the body was, the soul was purchased, the spirit was purchased, and the body was purchased, so they're purchased possessions. But when the spirit is killed and made new, it's no longer a purchased possession, it's a son. Adoption of sons, right? So now it's a son of God. That's why we're often called the sons of God, the sons of God, the children of God, the children of God, the sons of God. That's your spiritual person. Then it says, we're bond slaves, we're servants, we're servants, we're bond slaves. We're bond. Which one is it? It's both. My spirit is God's son, his child. My, my body is his slave. Will it always be his slave? No. My body will not always be God's slave because one day it will die and be remade, re, be remade new according to Christ's own image. And at that time, it will become God's son. Now, spirit and flesh unified, all happy. Right now, we are in the dilemma of having the spirit, having God's love and God's law written on its heart and being made in his image and true holiness and righteousness. And our flesh, our body, is that which nothing has been done. There's no advantage. There's no help. As I say, it's just a fallen thing that has to wait to die. There's nothing you can do to make it better. There's nothing you can do to get the sin out of it. You can culturally change it, right? Any pagan can do that. Any fallen person can culturally change their body. Religiously, sophisticatedly, scholastically. You can go to school. You can become more dignified. But... It can, be, it can be molded, but it's still going to die. 
The reason why it's going to die is because it's corrupt and fallen and worthless. The only thing it's only time it's not worthless is when my spirit presents it as if it's holy and living when it is neither holy nor living. That's the benefit. That's my my intimacy with God. My intimacy with God isn't oh, I'm going to go fold chairs or lead music or or teach, right? It's me presenting my body within the construct of my existence that makes sense to God, right? In other words, the reality that God has put me in, according to my gifts, according to my calling, according to my relationships, according to my place in this world. If I present myself in that reality accurately, presenting my body alive to him and holy from the world, right, holy unto God, then I will actually be now walking the first step, right, of walking in newness of life. That this is our priesthood. And so the battle for us is in the mirror, right? And um, for Cade, it's the new kid crying in the middle of the night. <laughs> I'm joking. That's where it starts. It starts with us looking in the mirror and realizing that my body is the thing that I have to present. So that means that whether I present it in small ways that no one knows, right, secret ways before God, prayer or gifts or kindness or some sort of support, whether I present it in that way or it's some big thing, teaching and singing and you're on the stage, doesn't matter what God's concerned about isn't the deed that I'm doing, right? He's not concerned about how well Beth is cooking dinner. He's concerned about how well Beth is presenting her body while cooking dinner, right? If it's living and holy in expression. Because that's the sacrifice he's looking for. He's not looking for the sacrifice of deeds He's looking for the sacrifice of faith. Thus, the deeds will come out of that. Right? The deeds will come out of that predisposition. That's why a lot of times we'll justify our service because we're just doing what we're supposed to do. But we're not doing it, controlling our flesh in such a way that it is pleasing to God and pleasing to those around us. You start doing deeds, but you're doing deeds without controlling the flesh. You're just pushing yourself to do them. And so relaxing, slowing down, getting a handle on your flesh and not allowing it just to perform the spiritual, if you will, the, 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 the duties, but rather the spirit controlling the body so as to be a sweet aroma, right? As Ephesians Four and five puts it. And so this is it. It says you present your bodies as living and holy, a living and holy sacrifice, because that's the thing I'm pushing to the altar to kill and to present living. Notice I'm presenting the sacrifice not as a dead sacrifice, but it's as a living sacrifice. Why? Because well, we're in the new covenant. It's a covenant of life not a covenant of death. So in the old covenant, they presented sacrifices of death. You bring the animal, you kill it. 
I present a sacrifice to God as a sacrifice of life, right? But we don't have animals, and we don't have to worry about paying for our own sins. Christ has done that. We don't have to worry about somehow concocting a plan to manipulate God and giving us new life. God does that based upon our faith at salvation. So the only thing we have left to do is to walk by faith that God has done, in fact, these things. And what he wants from us is this, because this is you proving that you actually believe he did his part, that he did his part. His part was to pay for your sins, to kill your old spirit, make it new, place it in, and then give you the Holy Spirit inside as a helper to your spirit, not to do through your body what needs to be done, but rather to help your spirit do through your body what it needs to be done. Spirit doesn't do it. Spirit doesn't get the rewards. The spirit doesn't get the criticism. The Holy Spirit. Your spirit does. Your spirit presents your body. Your spirit gets the rewards. Your spirit gets the criticism. All right? So the Holy Spirit doesn't mature. I mature. So it's me presenting my body. And it's so, it's so important to understand the dynamics of this so that it becomes a, a, a cognitive thing you wake up thinking about. I need to present my body in alive to God as if it likes him, as if it wants to serve him. Right? As if it wants to serve according to the reality of my life. Because uh, sometimes, I'm sure... Uh, Wife, the girls, they don't want to, to do service, right? Man doesn't want to go to work every morning, probably any morning. Anybody who says, oh, you know, just uh, people just don't want to work today. I'm like, yeah, I don't want to work today. Nobody wants to work today. Who's dumb enough to want to work today, you know? I'd, might, I'd want to do what I want to do, which may be categorized as some form of work. But I don't want to go to work and serve somebody else if I don't have to. Like, of course nobody wants to work. They shouldn't want to work. You should want to be able to do what you want to do and invent and play and enjoy your life and have a good time with your family. So, do anybody have any questions? This is, this is your acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. See, my spirit worships God in an acceptable way by presenting my flesh as living and holy when it is neither. It is only living and holy in this way. It is not living at all, but it is only holy in this way, I should say. That the Holy Spirit is now the indwelling person of the Godhead in it. And therefore, it's been set apart by God for service as an owned possession. He doesn't call my spirit an owned possession. He calls my flesh an owned possession. That's why it talks about, say, in Ephesians 1, until the redemption of the possession. It calls our body the possession. Our spirit's not the possession. Our spirit is the, ch the son, the child. But our body is the possession. And in this case, I'm supposed to present this possession back to him because I am more powerful spiritually than the sin that remains in my flesh, right? That's the reality of the situation.
And the way that you grow and mature so as to accomplish this is in verse 2. It's very simple. Though it is a process. And do not be conformed to this world. Why does he say don't be conformed? Because that would be the natural temptation of anybody who's not thinking by faith. To be conformed is just, you could go walk into a church, you could, you could just conform to the, to the rhythm of the church. Right? Sit up, sit down, stand up, sit down, give, go here, do this, do that, pray, blah, 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 blah. Go through the rhythm. So you conform to a system without faith, but it looks very spiritual. It looks very much like worship, but it's not. Why? Because it's not based in, first and foremost, me having a true understanding of my responsibility before God to present my body as living and holy in that particular context. Like, if you come here this morning just because you're supposed to or to see your friends, that's not a full, well-matured reason. It's a conformity. Right? It's a conformity. If you come because you're, present, you're presenting your body as living and holy to God in worship, so as to accomplish the second part of this, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's a difference between conformity and transformation. Conformity is simple. It's just social constructs, behavior modification. Transformation is the word for metamorphosis, where you literally change, right, from a caterpillar to a butterfly. And the metamorphosis aspect of things, where you change from, as 2 Corinthians puts it, from glory to glory. As I say, you're growing and maturing from one glorious state to a more glorious state through maturing spiritually. Your spirit maturates. It does this through renewing the mind. It is an intellectual pursuit, but it's not intellectual <clears throat> without a personal relationship, obviously. I sought, as you know, to get to know God. That's the whole point of my whole life. I just wanted to get to know him. Wasn't raised in Christianity, wasn't raised in any kind of religious background. The goal was to get to know him. The goal was to understand him. The goal was to walk with him. The goal was to be called a friend of God, which only a few people in the Bible ever called that. And so it's a great privilege, I think, to be called something like that. Greater than a prophet or a king or a priest. To be called God's friend, I think, to me, is the greatest title that a person could possibly attain. Because that means you actually know him and you walk and you groove together with him, right? For him to have a friend must be very exciting. For him to be served is acceptable. For you to be his friend, now that's very exciting. And so renewing the mind, obviously, is because I want to be his friend. I want God to be my friend. He is my friend, but I want to be his friend. I want to be considered by him his friend. I want him to think of me as his friend. Because a friend gets to know you, understands you, relates to you on intimate levels of how you think and how you approach things and what your preferences are and all these types of things. And a friend gets all that and grooves with that. Right? And so getting to know God is 
just that. Beth asked me the other day about something, about some testimony she heard, and she was talking to me about those demons and blah, 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 I forget what it was. And so I just popped open to Jeremiah 23. You read Jeremiah 23, what do you read? It's, it's a mild version. I just picked that because it's mild. But you, you read, God just wants you to know his word. And you got all these people saying all this stuff, having all these dreams and all these visions and all this stuff going on, all this power and all this whatnot. But he says, my word is not in their mouth. And the, uh, the part that I thought was so, like nailed it was um, basically nothing they're doing is actually bringing any value. Mm-hmm. Um, can't remember how it was said. Yeah. Like I said, he speaks more violently in different places, but that's a nice mild version. So, renewing your mind, obviously, is for the purpose of getting to know him. It's understanding him. It's having a relationship with him. And the only way for you to have that is to know about him. But to know about him is to, is to, is to know about what he did and what he accomplished, first and foremost, in the New Covenant. Otherwise, you find yourself perpetually confused about everything. Right? We just went over the other night about forgiveness and how many people are confused about that. Why? Because they're mixing Old Covenant and New Covenant together and they're wrecking both. They have no idea what they're talking about when it comes to the concept of forgiveness because they don't understand the New Covenant. If you don't understand the New Covenant, then you're going to mix everything up and it's going to ruin both things. You can't read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and put that into the New Covenant. It's pointing to the New Covenant, but the New Covenant is not explained in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because that's Old Covenant context. Jesus lived during the law. And so when he speaks, you have to take those things into consideration that he's actually under the law, representing the law, telling people to represent the law, relating to people who are representing the law and relating to the law. And we live in an era, we live in a covenant where the law is erased. So you go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you try to understand, well, what does this mean in our to us? It doesn't. Nothing. But a lot of what he said points to what was coming, didn't it? That an hour is coming. He said in John 4, you get the perfect example of that, the woman at the well. He says, you guys worship what you do not know. You worship your own Mount Gerasim. And... We worship what we know for salvation of the Jews, right? So he represents the law, where they're at, the technicalities of things. Because, but a time is coming and now is when the true worshipers will neither worship the Father on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. For God is a spirit and God desires those who, are, who worship him to worship in spirit and truth, right? So the goal from God was that none of that mattered as it, he pointed constantly to the coming new covenant. Constantly pointing to the new covenant. <clears throat> if you try to relate to God, mixing the old and new covenant, you will not be his friend, <laughs> practically speaking. He will be yours, but he'll be doing this a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah, grieving the Holy Spirit, big time. Because you're mixing them. 
can't put old wine or new wine into old wineskins lest it burst the wineskin and pour it on the ground and ruin both things. This is what Jesus said. You can't mix the old covenant and the new covenant because you destroy them both. It's impossible. You can't do it. And notice he packages it, right? The wine is the new covenant and the wineskin is the old covenant. Therefore, it's the external personification of the existing covenant that's inside of it. It's behavior. Right? I was told you can't put the behavior. Doing a sinful life as a Christian is mixing the wine and the wine. That's funny because it's so clear what he's talking about in the text. <laughs> um, I never so I heard thought, that as an as a application of that. Like, yeah. I don't know where I got from maybe I just Well, I would agree with them. Sinful would be to be trying to keep the law. <laughs> Or perform some sort of religiosity that would be therefore sinful because it's not based in the new covenant purely just in and of itself. And so our spiritual worship, our service, right? You have to stop there and get your mind around the fact that your service to God is going that the success of your service is going to be contingent or whether or not you are successfully, intellectually, understanding, with spiritual understanding, presenting your body in every second of every day so as to be alive and set apart. You go, okay. So that means there's, a, there's an inward focus to this, right? Where I have to understand myself, I have to understand my flesh, I have to, you can't, you can't mature without what? Self-awareness. If you're not self-aware, you can't evaluate, right? If you're oblivious to your lack of maturity or your foolishness, you can't evaluate it. All you can do is defend the foolishness. So, self-awareness. Learning about what I call your flesh profile is very important to understand. So you understand your flesh profile, but understand that that's not you. That's just the flesh profile. And everybody has one, and it'll morph and change as time goes on because you will turn it through presentation into a more godly profile. But it will never be godly. You can turn your flesh into a godly profile, but it's always going to be fallen until it's made new. The only time it'll actually be godly is when God makes it new and you no longer have to present it anymore. You just are it. When your spirit and your body come and become one again, and no longer will there be this divide between the spirit and the flesh. Do not be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that, why would I need to be transformed? So that I may have three things, right? So that, I'm, so that you may approve or prove. In other words, I can approve something. Because so many people will say, oh, I just want to know what God's will is for my life. I just wish I knew what God's will is. In this situation, he says, guess what? If you renew your mind, you will, in fact, for sure, be able to assess what God's will is in the particular areas of your life that you want to walk in. So it's really up to you. It's not up to him to reveal it. It's up to you to find it, to understand it. Because most of his will has been written out. 
And so you just live according to that which is communicated to you. Thus walking by faith. By the way, this goes back to faith. Walking by faith goes back to, to, to Exodus. It goes back before then, of course. But it goes back to Exodus in the way that we think of walking by faith. God's, you know, in the Old Testament, he would sometimes a lot show up, sometimes very little show up. We forget that there's a thousand years, you know, from or 1,200 whatever years uh, going back from Moses all the way to Christ. But so what you have is a lot of history. And we, we have a book that says, oh, God's just showing up all the time. No, there's tr large areas of time where God's not showing up. He's not talking. He's not doing miracles. Nothing's going on. And then, you know, we read like in Hezekiah died, blah, 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 and such and such died, blah, blah, blah. But it's only like a hundred years ago by there, and then all of a sudden God pops up again. So it's not like he's popping up every other day, right? But you go back to Exodus, and there's a discussion between Moses and the people of Israel at the foot of the mountain. And the discussion was this. God spoke, and they all pretty much peed their pants, pretty much is what it kind of describes. They grabbed themselves like a woman in labor. They're freaking out. They're passing out. It's, it's nasty business, right? It smells like the color, you know. So, so it would have been an ugly sight. God speaks and it scares them all literally to death. And then they say, what? They said, do not speak to us anymore. The people of Israel told God, do not speak to us anymore Rather, speak to us through, through Moses. Right? And God said, that's a shame, but that's actually quite wise because otherwise I might kill you all because you disgust me so bad. And if I can use Moses as a buffer, it'll keep my anger from just cleaning your clock out because you're so vile, basically. And they were. And that's exactly what happened. And that's when God really limited his personal interactions with them. He began to limit it down and phase it out uh, after that time. You see him showing up here and there, but most of the time, he, how did he address um, David when he counted Israel, or when he was with Bathsheba? Through Nathan the prophet, right? so how did he direct him when it came to whether Saul was going to catch him or not in that city he got the ephod right and he prayed over the ephod and God gave a message that way in other words God was lessening just the chitter chat he wasn't showing up every time Abraham's time he's like kicking it you know a few dudes show up angel dudes and the angel of the Lord's hanging out and he's like they're having a good old time they eat a meal together you know, and uh, so there was more personal interaction. After that, there's not as much personal interaction, right? Uh, you, it starts phasing out. This goes back to the faith part. Excuse me? I said this goes to the faith part while he's phasing it out. Yes, he's phasing it out because he's building an, uh, a foundation of faith being the primary mm -hmm. goal in the end. Because as time comes to this close, Ultimately, Jesus is the perfect example of God demanding that we walk by faith. Because, yes, Jesus had miracles and all that good stuff, 
but he's still a man and you still have to believe his words, right? You you have to believe his words. And yes, God spoke from heaven three times that we have recorded, but those who didn't believe didn't hear it, right? They heard thunder or whatever. His baptism, when the Greeks showed up and on the Mount of Transfiguration, God said, this is my son, listen to him, blah, 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 right? A few different times. But if you weren't a believer, you just heard thunder, and those who did have eyes to see heard and heard him, an angel or God, they were wondering what it was. And so faith was going to be the focal point. And faith means that I do have a relationship with God that's intimate and personal without the need of him showing up and talking to me. Right? Though I have not seen him, I love him. First Peter 1. Though we have not seen him, we love him. We have not seen him. Now, Peter, Stephen couldn't say that. At least as he was dying. But, um, but we haven't. Because we have the love of God in our heart. We're new creations. In other words, the, the proof of life is in the power of God working in us, not my conformity or my presentation of religiosity in any kind of way. The proof of life is in the inside of me is changed. And therefore, I'm able to control the outside of me until God changes it. So when somebody goes, well, you think they're saved or not? I'm like, well, they're saved if they have new life bubbling up from within. When they've been in the church, you know, 10 years, whatever. Doesn't matter. Did they were they a pain in the butt, or were they like? Did they have new life bubbling up from within in the church? Right. It doesn't matter how often someone shows up. It matters if they have new life bubbling up from within, if they're born from above, and from that base. Then, if you really want to excel in your spiritual walk, it'll be because your focal point on your life is knowing how to present your body against the grain of its natural desire. This is why he says, you'll be able to approve the will of God, that which is good, acceptable, or well-pleasing, and perfect. Three things, right? There's more that you could say, but these three encompass a lot. If you present your body, if you present it as a living sacrifice, by renewing your mind, you will then, in your life, you will approve things with your life's behavior. You will approve that which is good as opposed to bad, acceptable or well-pleasing as opposed to that which is unacceptable or not well-pleasing, and perfect, an absolutely perfect execution of walking by faith. So good as opposed to, you know, because sometimes you just do the, like when he says, be at peace with all men as much as is possible with you. You can't be at peace with all men if the men aren't peaceful, right? But you be at peace with all men as much as is possible with you. It's good. You did your best. Whether they were peaceful or not is irrelevant. You did your best. You were good or well-pleasing to the Lord. Then there's like perfect, where you just dial it in, bam, where you, you love, where you present yourself in such a way that's absolutely perfect. And you can quantify that. He says you can know that. 
whether you were good, acceptable, or perfect in that moment. I dialed it in. I killed it. And if you think one way and you're wrong, God will make that evident to you later on, right? I don't know if I, there's not many things I would do the same five years ago that I do now. And there's some, but, but life as you mature, you refine things, you tweak it, you polish it. In the early years, you're doing huge twists and turns and your stuff's breaking and... You know, you're having to, to really um, make decisions that are hard. But in the latter years, you're just refining your walk. Just tweaking it, polishing it up. And that's why he says, verse 3, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. But to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. That's true. Then what does he mean by that? Well, what he means by not that your faith is any different than anybody else's faith when it comes to the technical data and the result of that being a transformed mind and therefore a, a, a spirit that's capable of presenting your body in a good and acceptable and a perfect way. He's talking about the functionality of the body and the giftedness. So he says, just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts, there we go, gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy in according, uh, according to the proportion of his faith. That's important because you want to speak what you know and you don't want to speak what you don't know. One of the worst problems somebody can have is they think they need to have an answer for everything when they're ignorant. Oh, that's uh, talking about this, that, and the other. Just shut it, right? You don't know. Let's say, you know, I don't know. I need to study that. I don't, I don't, I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't need an answer. I don't need to have an answer. I'll get back to that. You know, and somebody used to, when people asked me questions years ago, I was like, I have no idea. I write down the question, you go study, you figure it out, and now you have an answer. But without self-awareness and humility, you're just become an arrogant, pompous windbag that feels like they don't need to go and study and get an answer because, you know, people just trust you. So you're just kicking out nonsense when you don't know what you're talking about. That's why it says according to the proportion of that person's belief. You, prophesy, you, you preach to prophecy to speak before people according to what you know, not according to what you don't know. In service, in his serving. In teaching, in his teaching. In his exhortation, one who, in, in his, he who exhorts in his exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. That's the one I was pointing to that week before. Shows mercy with cheerfulness. Because <clears throat> showing mercy can lead somebody to go, oh, 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 and you're not cheerful in life. You're always bummed and bearing burdens that are too heavy for you. and So you have to be cheerful. Why would, why would you be cheerful in mercy? What verse would lead you to be cheerful in mercy? 
Romans 8, 28. Something bad happens to somebody. You mercifully speak to them and you go what? God will work it out. In fact, he promised to do that for the good of those who love him. So you're cheerful in mercy. You show compassion or mercy and you're cheerful about it. Another aspect of that is if you have the opportunity to show to love an enemy, because that would be the concept of mercy, to love someone who's done wrong to you and to show them grace, sometimes like, well, I forgive you, but, you know, I'm going to give a scowl on my face while I'm doing it. In other words, if you're going to, if you're going to show favor to people, then do it with a happiness in your, on, your, on your face and not a scowl. That's a hard one. Because when you're in authority, you got to make life work. And you got people dragging their feet or being anchors. You're having to be merciful and being doing what's best for the person and trying to lead the person best you can. And it's not easy to be cheerful in that context. Right? So being merciful I'm with cheerfulness. Sure if I'm like, getting the point of... That's great. All right, that's nice. <laughs> like I'm trying, I'm trying. Okay, so since we have gifts that differ, yeah, according to the grace given us, if prophecy according to the proportion of faith, if service in his serving, if he teaches in his teaching, so he's repeating himself, and I'm not sure if I get the point. Like it's you have it's someone who's doing according going back up to verse three, it, like, okay. verse three based upon your belief about what you should be doing. In other words, if you're going to serve, serve according to what you believe you should be do, doing in service. Not what you're being provoked or manipulated or pressured to do, but rather your faith should be functioning as the foundation according to each one's faith. Going back up to verse 3, God has a lot of each measure of faith. You see that in verse 6, according to the proportion of his faith. So that's, then he, he takes that and pivots also, not just with speaking, but with serving and with teaching and with exhorting and with giving and with leading and with showing mercy. So, in other words, do it according to the proportion of your faith. Out of the renewal of the mind, not a conformity based upon your presentation of your life. So verse 3, verse 2, verse 1, we're still talking about that down here, right? Right. Well, that's the basis, right? But what I'm saying is once you've transformed the mind and now you have the practical areas of life, right? The practical areas of life. Well, it's easier to see in giving, right? Because you can just say, okay, um, the, uh, the need is $10,000. You could, you could give that. You could meet that yourself. Or... You go to the Lord and you, you beseech the Lord and you decide on what your faith is on what you should give, right? So that as 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 talks about, it's not out of compulsion or it's not out of obligation, but rather it's from a cheerful heart, right? So you do it according to your faith as opposed to according to the need of the moment or according to the compulsion or according to the obligation or according to the pressure, right? So... Therefore, your faith would be determining your, your giving. That's easier to see. But the same is true in service. Like, how do I serve? If I don't have money to give and I have time to give, 
It has to be according to my faith. I need to stop when my faith has ended rather than being pressured to keep going because somebody, just because somebody needs, quote unquote, needs the help. Right? Right. In other words, because here's what will happen. You have, let's just say you as a mom, six kids, and, and you're uh, my wife, right? You know for a fact God's called you to serve the home, right? And so we make a plan, and our, our, your faith is based upon the plan of our discussion, and therefore you need to be home. We want to help some woman do something, mm-hmm. right? And our faith is, all right, you need to be home by six because of A, B, and C, and D, and E, F, right? Kids, right. we got to get things together, school's tomorrow, blah, 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 right. and we go through this thing. My belief in my position Right, you believe in your position, your true obligation, your, your true, where you know for a fact God has you as opposed to the, the outskirts of yeah. little things you might want to do. Subjective areas. The subjective areas, right. They're objective to your faith, but they're subjective in that God doesn't say, hey, Beth, serve that person with a baby shower or something like that, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. So then rather than sticking to what your faith is, they, oh, you know, they want to keep talking it's fun, or they have questions about the Bible. You say, well, it's spiritual, you know, I was answering questions. They had a question about raising kids. Well, but it's spiritual, right? So rather than walking according to your faith, what you had planned, not that you can't change that, right? You called up and said, hey, I got this going on. And then because you're, you know, and uh, I know what we talked about earlier, what do you value, Greg? Do you value this or value that? And will you and the kids be okay? Because have you planned anything? Obviously, you know, is there anything in the fridge? Can we make it easy? Can dinner, blah, 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 whatever. Whatever the circumstances are, you're right? Back in the but you're, 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 you're looking at the faith that you're actually in. And you're making sure you're trying to, to properly, not at 6 o'clock when you're supposed to be home, but at 5.30, but, you know, as you see it, you know, coming. And you go, oh, I need to walk according to my belief. My belief was we were in unity that, you know, be home at this time because that's what's best for you, me, everybody, right? But as you and I know many times, we've made that plan and you've called up and said, hey, I've got something going on, sometimes a little later than normal, you know, uh, but, but nonetheless. And, and I said, yeah, sure, continue, we'll figure it out, you know, we'll make it happen. So I'm not rigid uh, in that way unless I need to be. Unless like, no, I need to be, need to have your home because of A, B, and C, blah, blah, blah. So in other words, but your faith is determining your actions. Because you've set, before you start, a parameter of what you intend to do. Now you can change that. But you need to, before you change it, make sure it's not because of a whimsical reason or a lustful reason, or a foolish reason, or I'm just having a lot of fun, and and uh, or I'm being pressured, uh, or I feel obligated. That's an obligatory concept. So that's how your faith would then work out in service, right? And so. But um, there's such a if service and is serving, if teaches and is teaching, and yep. it switches to with, with, and with. Do you have, I mean, is there anything other than just like what's obviously there? Well, it changes because there's a certain, 
application when it comes to the next things that it would not be leading and is leading. There's an application of, of caution or exhortation. Like for instance, in he who leads with diligence. The reason why that would need to be said is because it's easy to lead people who want to be led or who are led easy, right? But it's not easy to lead people who are fighting you like a fish on the hook the whole way. And if you stop give, and, and, and stop leading them, then they're like, why are you leading me? <laughs> but in the reality, they're fighting you the whole way. So what do you want to do? Screw it. Cut the line. Cut the line. You want to go back in the water? Go back in the water. I'm not going to drag you forward, yeah. right? So that's true. That's still true. I'm not going to drag people forward because I'm not Jesus in their life. I'm not, I'm not important like that. So they still have to apply their own faith to walk forward. But when you have somebody doing that, fighting you and whining, what do you want to do? Cut them off. You don't want to be diligent in your leading or stand. In that case, you just stand, right? So the word diligence would be like, okay, assiduously, you know, do it with diligence. So those three things kind of take a little extra measure of specific almost wisdom to apply in the application of the faith. Like, they do. Yeah. Be because, be because you can do a lot of damage if you lead without diligence or you uh, give without cheerfulness um, uh, or, or, excuse me, mercy without uh, cheerfulness or you, uh, if you give without liberality, you know. What? Right. Going to the next... Which leads into that next, you know, verse 9. Okay, I think I got it. <laughs> That's why it says, the reason why I said love without hypocrisy in verse 9 is because mercy with cheerfulness, if, if you're being, if you're showing grace, because that's what the flip of uh, in the new covenant, the old covenant, you'd be forgiving someone by being merciful. In the new covenant, you're showing them grace because we're not under the old covenant. Therefore, we don't have the right to forgive. We have the right to show mercy, show compassion. And so the reason why it says in your mercy with cheerfulness, rather than saying in your mercy forgiveness, is because it's not always cheerful to show grace to someone who's not been kind to you or he's been mean to you or doesn't, or, you know, who's been mean to others or whatever, right? It's not easy to be kind to them and to show them mercy or show them grace. Not that we have to show them grace forever, you know, right? You reject a factious man after his first and second warning and you boot him out, right? So there's, there's, a, there's a, we're not under the Matthew 18 stipulation of, of going through all this mess in the new covenant. So, um, there's different different applications of love because you, to love the whole body means sometimes you can't love this one person because this person is disrupting the whole body. It's easy to put up with somebody one-on-one. -on -one. It's not easy if they're in the group jacking up the whole thing, right? So loving without hypocrisy would make sure that your, your mercies with cheerfulness so that you, you could evaluate that, oh yeah, it's not hypocritical. Like I'm not doing it with a scowl. And in unsincerely, or not contemplatively true, 
of what my mercy that I'm showing. Which leads us to that point, and we'll wrap up with this as a, as a point of consideration. That's why it says, it says let love be without hypocrisy, but let and be are not in the Greek. It just says love without hypocrisy. Love without hypocrisy. And it says that because the world's love is based in hypocrisy. It's the only thing they know. Yeah, there's an element. And the reason why that's true, somebody tell me why it's true. Because they have phileo love, but they don't have agape love, right? They don't have the love of God in their heart. So a true love that comes out of God, that's selfless, right? That thinks truly about just the other person, they do not have. They do not have a love of God in their heart. That's true. But they do have phileo love. They have the ability to love parents, love their kids, and people love each other, and people give each other gifts and do nice things. And when you do that, loving with hypocrisy is loving, but as long as you're in some way getting some aspect of benefit from it. Oh, I got the perfect picture. I took a screenshot. It's beautiful. I always talk about the 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 pic, you know, the sweater that Grandma makes, right? Grandma makes a sweater and gives it to you. She's attempting to love you, but she doesn't accomplish an act of love because she didn't ask you if you wanted a sweater knit by her. Number one, that looks like some rainbow bright thing or some pattern of weirdness or whatnot. And so, consequently, I hope I can find this. It's just beautiful. It's a picture of all the kids like, Grandma learned how to knit this year. Yeah. Yeah, this is, this is hypocritical love right there. I don't know if you see that. No, it's a sweater that looks like a vest for everyone. Isn't that lovely? Yes, Grandma sought for love, but didn't actually accomplish love, because those puppies are going into the, into the, the, the bottom of the dresser, into the Goodwill, and if you, as soon as they can get them, you know, oh, did they look so cute together? We'll take a picture, you know. It's the, the Christmas story, the pink bunny, yeah. the pink nightmare, you know. So. In other words, a lot of people want to take you out for your birthday to get you a meal with them. So you can share cake with them. Right? Get you a gift because they're excited that they thought you would like this gift. Do they know? Do they really know if you like it? So they get so excited. Oh, open it, open it, open it. You're like, oh, that's great. It's got the gift receipt with it. You know, It's like, that's hypocritical love. Because you are saying, I want to be able to enjoy the process. Now, I love enjoying the process of giving gifts, of loving, and getting some aspect of joy out of it. However, you ought to be first and foremost considering that before you ever do anything in service or teaching or any of these things, because this is what the context is, (laughs) giving, showing mercy, exhorting, that you might not receive any happiness or joy from it whatsoever. 
and you're okay with that. In fact, you're happy about that, right? Jesus made this the same point, not that you always have to pray in secret, right? But in Matthew, this is pray in secret, right? So that God knows what you're doing, giving and praying in secret, and he will be happy with you, and he'll reward you because you're doing it unhypocritically. You're not just doing it just to do it so that you're being, you're gaining from it through the process. You're, you're gaining from it because the people are like, oh, look how humble, look how much he gives, look, look at how well he pray, how sincere his prayer is. He says, oh, there's a time for public prayer and giving in that way. But for the most part, your, your heart ought to be, if you can do it just to do it privately, without getting in return anything, that's the better route, right? So if giving to someone or serving someone in that way, if it can be done in a way that you don't benefit, then God ramps up the eternal reward. And so that's not normal for humanity. Humanity wants to enjoy the, the, the giving, the teaching, the interaction, the love, Whatever it is, they want to enjoy it. Christmas, holidays, all that. They want you to like it. If you don't like their gift, what are you? Selfish, you know, picky. You're just being picky. Like literally, they will shame you into making a false profession of affinity for the gifts that they have given. Oh, you just went up picky. Oh, no, no, it's great. It's great. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Lie, lie. It's like, now you're lying. You know, you don't love it. You're just telling them that so you, feelings don't get hurt. Well, the feelings need to get hurt in order for them to grow and mature. Self-awareness. Huh? Thus, self-awareness, right. In other words, loving without hypocrisy is knowing that your love actually accomplishes an act of love, not just you doing an act of love. Right? You could spend $100,000 on buying me a vehicle for my family. But if it seats two and I have seats no. six kids, it doesn't matter. You didn't actually accomplish it, except that I could sell it and get something that seats six, right? <laughs> you loved and you loved greatly. But this isn't, you know, uh, grandma sitting in a rocking chair on top of the car on the way to Beverly Hills. You know, this is a... <laughs> you, you got to accomplish the act. I had I, I, someone one time years ago. I needed tires for my car. The time back when we were less, it was the time when Beth. We just had a kid, and the the, the transition of wealth was going down <laughs> for us. And I needed tires, and somebody said, "Well, I got some tires and such and such." And they were this size, right? They were, they don't fit my car. They're not the right size. They're not the right kind. But a Jeep Grand Cherokee. Come on. Huh. Yeah, and I'm like, no, I appreciate it. No, thank you. Like, why would you even put me in a situation where I have to reject your tires that don't fit my car? You know how stupid that is, right? That's not hypocritical only. That's dumb. That's a little bit mean. You're like, dude, well, I'm just trying to help. Just, all right, you're, you're way behind on the love ladder, love scale of how to accomplish it. 
making it difficult. So when you love, you actually want to accomplish the act. Here's a lot of, here's a big deal, right? Somebody has a need or has a need for service. Some people won't participate if they can't complete it. Let's say you have a desire for something that costs a lot or needs a lot, right? They won't, but they can't, they can't get you to get it, right? They could give, say it's a truck and all they could give is 15 grand, but the truck you need is 25. So they just won't participate if they can't complete it. But they want to go with you. They want to buy it. They want to see your face. They want to make sure that you, you know, you're happy. You're happy. You're happy. In other words, you know, they, if they can't participate in the joy of it, then they don't want to participate at all. I've seen that over and over and over in life. That's hypocritical love. Love is just you doing what you can do and trusting the Lord for the, for the rest of it. But it didn't accomplish them getting it. Doesn't matter. You, you participated in the progress or the potential of them, of them getting closer to it. Right? So love, it doesn't matter if you're, if you're, uh, you're, you're doing some significant thing. It matters if you're participating in an act of love that accomplishes something. Right? If you bought me a big old gallon of oat milk, I'd be like, and said, mmm, there you go. Well, you participated in loving your family. I'd be like, well, that's going down the drain. You know? <laughs> well, if you give me some good vitamin D cow milk now, that, that's going to go down the belly. But in other words, you're not going to accomplish an act of love just by doing something. You've got to know what you're doing, know what you're trying to accomplish, and actually accomplish an, accomplish an act of love without hypocrisy. Let's say without you having to have some benefit from it. This is a epidemic in our culture, by the way. <laughs> it's an epidemic. Because people are just infatuated with making sure that they get to participate in the, in the love or that you should like their love. Is this where you're plugging that book for me? Oh, what was the book? The, yeah, we were joking about a book. Oh, it's the thought that counts. That's right. You're talking about doing a book on, on love, calling it, It's the Thought That Counts. All the ways. What, what's, what's the, what's the subtitle? Five hundred ways to almost love someone. <laughs> 500 ways to almost love someone. Yeah, it's that picture, you know. A picture, a picture of nice clothes. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, anybody have any questions on on all this, Chris? Yes. Okay. So sort of going. Back to the beginning, we talked about in religion the values outside of yourself. As a believer, it's really valuable the whole thing of what am I doing with myself. Right. And so our priesthood is presenting the body back to God. Um, it's an inward focus with a, with, a, with, a, with a result of outward service in some way. So perfect. What can, how can I help somebody who I say this and they respond? This is literally works-based salvation. First, you set up with the, the wide knee stance, and you get low in your hips, and then you pull these arms back like this, and you just go, ah, 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 ah. <laughs> that's one option. 
That's one option. That's old school. It's gonna look a little weird, the little 80s style, but um, that's an option. Well, it occurs to me quickly as like a wineskins wine problem. Yeah. But well, more what advanced answer would be a, a very important, <laughs> a, an actual, a non-stupid answer is uh, yeah. An alternative to that is uh, anytime somebody has a question like that, I will go to, well, what did I do for you, Kate? Take me through marriage counseling when I first met you. Open your Bible to John chapter 3 and Romans chapter 3. <laughs> In other words, I have a question about Romans 12. Good. Open your Bible to John 3 and Romans 3. In other words, I can't take you to Romans 12 until you understand the gospel well enough to know what I'm talking about because you won't understand it because you don't know the gospel that well. Right. Great question. We'll start here. Yeah, we'll it's a great question. <laughs> Six months from now, I'll answer that. But let's just go through the gospel and the whole New Testament, and then we'll answer Romans 12. You're on an apples and oranges kind of conversation at that point. You're talk, you could be talking about salvation. They're talking about salvation, but it's not the same. Right. You They're talking about their religious is, established version of salvation as opposed to actual salvation. And thus... They won't understand because they're not looking. They don't see themselves as being a spirit and a flesh, even though this is truly all the new covenant talks about, right? I've said it to you, I don't know, 15 times. This concept seems like the linchpin of the whole operation. Yes. The understanding yes. of that too. Yeah. Um, That's why every New Testament book devotes a section to it naturally as a presuppositional base for the rest of the book uh, so it's uh, it's the basis of everything because it's like the, the grounding of faith like you can't see it but it's in you like you, right. it's, it's the invisible thing that, that no one can see so it literally has to be the belief of God said it, so it's true. But that's everything started. Right. Going back to Second Corinthians, which says, I stare at that which is unseen, for that which is unseen is eternal, but that which is seen is temporal, right? Second Corinthians. Talking about our spirit as opposed to our flesh. So he goes, I stare at the unseen. Because that way, he mentally stares at it through faith, Right? Because I can't see my spirit, but I stare at that which is unseen. In other words, that's the focus of my faith. Because that which is seen is, is temporal. That which is unseen is eternal. And so his focal point on his life is staring at the unseen, the unseen, not the seen. I think it's chapter 3 or something. Or somewhere. Yeah, so basically the answer is you have to, it's the long game. Everything's the long game. You have to go back and say, okay, I want to answer that question, but will you indulge me to take you through some other passages to set, help set that up? Will you allow me to take you through some things? And what happens if they say, yeah, but blah, 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 what about this question? What do you do? You say, that's a good question. Write it down. We'll get back to it. Let's continue in Romans, right? Let's continue in Ephesians. In other words, you keep pushing off the questions to get through the, 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 the base because otherwise you'll get taken off in every direction and not make it through your text that you're trying to show them and having them read it again you're not reading it to them 
they are reading it. That way they read it for themselves and they have to grapple with that which they read. It's amazing how people, because when people, when you speak, people think. And when they think, they miss about 20, 30, 40, 50% of what you say. What did you say? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but when they read it for themselves, they can't think anything but what they're reading. And so then they have to focus and they have to deal with the fact that it's not you telling them this. It's what they're reading in the text. This is why I do it the way I do it when it comes to a one-on-one. I never read to people. They read to them. Well, never. Very, very rarely do I read it. They read it. And then I stop them and ask them questions. What does that mean? Why does it say that? Blah, blah, blah. And then they're like, oh, I don't know. I've never read that before. It's like, I've read it a thousand times, but I've actually never read it. Right? Because people read right over it. If they read it, they have to stare at it. it, Right. Right. Because I have no personal ambition for anyone to just believe anything because I said it. I'm no one, right? I'm nothing. God is the one who wrote his word. And if they, my goal is to get them to face him and to relate to him and understand who Jesus Christ is. Only way to do that is to get them to read it for themselves and, and slow them down. Because people are like, blah, 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 blah. Quick reader will read right through it. But he, wait, 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 wait. What was the God's, what, whose righteousness are we discussing? Like Romans 3, right? They're like, and then people, then they stop and stare at it for a while, like, huh. And then they'll say something like, Jesus is? Mm-hmm. Like, it says the righteousness of God right there in front of them. Yeah. It's like, then it, it's God's righteousness we're talking about. That's right, not mine, not Christ's, God's. Why are we talking about God's righteousness? I thought this was not a, a closed book. God is righteous, right? Well, yeah, but how can you prove it if he loved if he loved the humanity and didn't kill him. He didn't do what was right. He did what was loving. And he can't be a loving God without be, and, be, uh, and, and not be righteous or you fall into sin. Thus the dilemma, thus the need for Christ to die. Right? God so loved the world. Problem. That he had to kill his son. Solution. Whoever believes that can both escape damnation and also be given eternal life. I mean, how many of you thought had ever read John 3.16 and actually thought about it until I pointed it out to you. Right? <laughs> nobody. Why? Because nobody goes, why does God's love the problem? Nobody reads John 3.16 even though that's what everybody should do. Everybody should go, God so loved the world he had to kill his son. Why does God's love the problem that resulted in killing his son? That's, that's a logical deduction, right? But people don't do that. They just read the Bible like, oh, just read the Bible. <laughs> I'm not going to think. I'm not going to use my intellect. I'm just going to read it. In other words, you have to criticize it in order to get to understand it. You have to slow it down. God loved the world. Hmm. He gave his only begotten son to die. To be hung on the pole like a serpent. And if I believe that mess, right, that terrible situation of Christ dying because God loved the world, I can avoid hell and be given eternal life? Okay, I need some answers. Right? Where are the answers? Well, that's, that is unfolded completely in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, and we can go right through that, right? So that's the thing that you want to do, is you want to slow it down for people to grapple with it. Uh, much like, as we said too, in, which is why I slow it down in John 3, 5 and, uh, 3, 3 and 5, where you're, you have to be born from above 
to see heaven, right? The kingdom of heaven. You have to be born of the Spirit to enter. So unless no religion matters, no stuff matters, if you're not born from above or born of the Spirit, you're not entering in, period. You don't see it, you don't enter it, end of discussion. So if that's the bottom line, at that point, think about religion. All the religions of the world, do any of them matter in light of that statement? Right? So none of the religions of the world, none of the, none of the denominations of the world matter when you have a statement like Christ said, if you are not born from above, from God, and you're not born of the Spirit, you will not see heaven, you will not enter heaven. At that point, nothing matters, right? The only thing that matters, the only thing that should matter is how do I get God to birth me from above, to make me new? Right? That's, that's, I don't care about religion, I don't care about denominations, I don't care about orthodoxy, I don't care about theology, I don't care about anything. How do I get God to birth? Because I want to see heaven and I want to enter heaven and I can't do that unless... God births me from above. So period, end of discussion. I, I got to know the answer to that. He gives the answer in John 3, 16, but he doesn't give all the details, right? He gives all the details in Romans 3, 21 through 26. So the mystery wasn't <clears throat> it wasn't unveiled yet. So you couldn't believe it. All you could believe is a weird version of what he just said. You couldn't believe the gospel because the gospel hadn't been unveiled yet. Nicodemus couldn't believe it yet. All he could do was believe what Jesus said without understanding any of the natural implications of it, really. Until it was fully unveiled later on. That's why, I mean, it would have been, John 3, 16 would be the moment for Nicodemus to go, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> this just replay that. What did you just say? How is God's love the problem? He doesn't. He doesn't stop him. He's, he's, he's been mule kicked. Right? The born from above thing already blew his whole religion straight down the toilet. So all of a sudden all his righteousness is a filthy rags because you got to be born from above to enter and see heaven. He's sitting there reeling at that little you know, revelation of information. And Jesus throws out a bomb, John 3, 16, which should make him have... Uh, you know, I've got so many questions right now, and he doesn't ask one. No, no, he does not ask anything after John three sixteen. He doesn't ask anything. So he, he just, and then Jesus moved on. You know, he didn't ask anything, or do you think they didn't write it down? He didn't write down that he asked anything. I suppose if if. If, if he did, they would have wrote something down, maybe. But he was dumbfounded. But how could he? I mean, it's, that was far above his pay grade at that point. You know, We're like, yeah, of course, Romans 3. You know? <laughs> I'd have been dumbfounded, too, if I was Nicodemus. I don't know what, what he just said. He smoked my brain. So, all right, any final questions on, uh, on what we've learned, what we've looked at, I should say? I have a question. Yes. Like, if someone is born from above and they're not, like, you know, it says you'll know them by their fruits and they're not yep. presenting their body in that way, like, that's described to you. So, is that, like, it's a 
like lack of maturity or unbelief? Is that just not our Well yeah, if you look at say Peter, Second Peter one, you know, and and many other passages, such as Romans twelve, two, what's the flip of if you don't renew the mind? You will not be able to approve that which is good, acceptable, and perfect, right? So you can be saved, but like you're just going to live a life that's, you're just not going to be joyous, you're just not going to be, you're going to be like... Well, you're going to be frustrated. You're going to grieve almost. Well, you're going to grieve in your own heart, mm-hmm. right? Because your spirit's new, longing for God, love of God's poured out into it, the righteous God written on it, and you don't know how to exercise it very well. You won't find somebody who's saved just out living in the world completely apathetic toward God. You'll find a frustrated, ignorant person, confused and still striving to relate to God in some way or another, but, uh, but ignorantly. And so as uh, it renders them uh, at, into limited use, put it that way. That's why Second Peter says, if these qualities are yours, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of Christ. In other words, because a child of God who's young, who knows nothing, kind of falls into this Romans 7 category of 21 following of uh, the flesh dominating them at first until you mature and become a Romans 6 person. Romans 7, ironically, is the more less mature illustration. Romans 6 is the more mature illustration. Romans 6, uh, you know, 11 and 12, 13, 14, where I'm presenting my body. I'm, I'm, I'm not letting sin reign in my mortal body so as to obey its lust. That's the more mature person, whereas the immature person is the, 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 the law of sin in the flesh is just working me over and I'm tormented by it. The only way to know if someone genuinely believes is to take them through the gospel and see if they rejoice, love it, since a freedom comes over them, or they, they hate it and reject it and argue against it. It's the only way. That's a starting place. That doesn't guarantee it, but it certainly is a starting place. So, all right. All right, well, we pray and close this out. We'll enjoy some food and go about fellowship. Father, thank you for this time. I pray that it is a blessing to the minds of us all, that through it our minds are transformed, so that we have some focus to work upon as far as our faith developing in every day that we wake up, setting our heart and our mind toward this ambition of presenting our body as a sacrifice to you, but not a dead one, but a living one. One that is set apart from the world and yet knows how to function within it. One that knows our faith that we would know how to present ourselves within the parameters of our giftedness and within the parameters of our service based upon what we do know and understand and suppose of what we don't. And that our love would be that which is non-hypocritical. That we would mature in that in such a way as to be a blessing to you and to others and that you would be your heart would be over, overjoyed, filled with joy, you and Christ, for the love that we share. That heaven will be represented in that love. 
and based upon a, a common faith that is based in your faith. And so we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.